Well, good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, whatever time of day it is when you may tune in. This is Minister Kay Mortimer with Covenant Truth Ministries. And this is a message, it's a part of a different study that I've done in the past in a couple of different series that I've taught. And I want to bring it to you and the message today is one of the, the studies in this series called The Names of Jesus. And the one that I want to focus on today is where he is called the Wonderful Counselor, or you might say the Wonder of a Counselor. And so I want to look at that, and we will be going to a particular chapter in John in just a moment, but I want to set this up because we will be in John chapter 8, but I want us to understand the backstory to get us to John chapter 8. And so in the book of John, in the gospel of John, we see Jesus in the very first chapter as the, as the eternal one, as the one who existed before the, even the creation of the world. He is God has always existed as God and was before even the beginning of the world. And then we see John the Baptist coming and testifying of him, baptizing him. We see Jesus' ministry begin and, you know, some of his encounters with the scribes and the Pharisees. John's purpose in writing his gospel is that his readers will know that Jesus is the giver of eternal life, and it's through faith in him that anyone is saved and has eternal life, and that you will know that you have eternal life when you have believed in him. So John gives us his purpose. In John chapter 20, we read that. So John has recorded several different events that have happened in Jesus' life, in the early chapters before we get to chapter 8. But in John chapter 7, we read where it is the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Sukkot, the Jews call it. And in the Feast of Sukkot, it was a seven-day feast and an eighth day has been added, you know, where they would rejoice in the Torah. They call it Sukkot Torah, and there would be rejoicing in the Torah. But On the last day of the feast, the great day of the feast, Jesus had stood up and cried out with a loud voice to them and said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And he was referring to giving them of the fountain of living waters of the Holy Spirit of God, and they would never thirst again. And so this happens. Well, then the scribes and the Pharisees didn't like it. They got upset about it. Well, we see the account of where they're having this meeting and discussing this this event and that they don't like Jesus and they're jealous of him and all of that. Nicodemus makes a comment. Now, Nicodemus came to Jesus by night back in John chapter 3, and John records that for us. So we see Nicodemus' interest in Jesus, and we see the beginnings, or at least little inklings that he may be inquiring. He is coming to faith at some point. We do not know exactly when he comes to faith, but we do know that by the time that Jesus dies, 
Nicodemus is a disciple of Jesus. It says, though secretly. It was no longer secret once he and Joseph of Arimathea buried the body of Jesus. But up to that point, he had been somewhat of a secret disciple. So we don't know exactly when he or Joseph of Arimathea came to believe in Jesus. But we do know that in John chapter 7, he does speak a defensive word on Jesus' behalf. And then, of course, the scribes and the Pharisees, you know, almost rebuke Nicodemus and perhaps even begin to wonder about him. So then we come to this passage in John chapter 8. Now, before I get there, I want us to realize something, though, that it appears in John chapter 8 that this event happens almost the morning after the great day of the feast, which in Jesus' day may have been just the end of the Feast of Sukkot. I'm not certain exactly when the the eighth day began, the Simchat Torah, where there would be the rejoicing in the Torah. But it was on one of those days, and it appears in John chapter 8 that it's the next day when we have this encounter. All right, now, so Jesus had spoken to them on that last day of the feast, and then we're told that Jesus goes to the Mount of Olives. We're not told exactly where, but it's very possible he went to Gethsemane. He went there several times to pray and so forth. By the time we come to the Garden of Gethsemane on the night of his betrayal, we're told Judas even knows that it's a place that he frequents. It's a place that he has regularly gone to, and so Judas expects that he will be there. We don't know exactly where on the Mount of Olives he did go, but, but it appears that this very next day is when we read in John chapter 8. So I want to turn there first, and in John chapter 8, I want to read the first 12 verses. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? 
She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Now, this is the story that we're going to talk about, but I want us to understand it from the perspective of what is actually happening here and how does this fit with the name of Jesus that was prophesied that he is to be the wonderful counselor or wonder of a counselor. I want to go back to Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 9, I want us to see this verse because this series really is about the names of Jesus and this is one of them that we're discussing today. Beginning in verse 6 of Isaiah chapter 9, it says this, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, or Father of Eternity, it should be translated, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end, upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward even forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. So here in Isaiah 9, 6, we're given the names of Jesus that this son that is given, this child that is being born, that was prophesied by Isaiah, this son of the virgin that Isaiah 7.14 told us about, that he will be called, one of the things he will be called is wonderful counselor or wonder of a counselor. So how does that apply here? This is just one example, but it is a major example that shows Jesus as the wonderful counselor. So first of all, to understand this, let's remember what time this is. We just talked about how this is just after the Feast of Sukkot, or Tabernacles, has ended. On the Jewish calendar, they have a Torah portion, a parsha, that is read every week of the year, on every Shabbat. And these include Torah portions, meaning from the first five books of the Bible, and Haftarah portions, which come from the other readings of the scripture, such as the prophets and other Old Testament books. And of course, now, Messianic Jews also add to that the Berit Kadashah, the New Testament portions, as well. In Jesus' day, there would only have been the Torah and the Haftarah portions that would have been read. In essence, they form a, a annual Bible reading program. Now, there's some differences. Some of the Jews did it on a triennial cycle where it was the whole of the Bible was read every three years. And in the Babylonian captivity, they began an a annual reading cycle. There was a reading cycle that the Jews have established, and now it's pretty much an annual reading cycle that they have established. And so it's similar to 
reading through the Bible in a year type plans. And these are assigned readings for every day or every week of the year. And these are based upon the Jewish calendar. And at the end of Tabernacles is when the readings would be. The last great day of the feast, the Torah portion reading from the regular readings on that calendar, and Numbers 29, 26 through 34, which would detail the days of Sukkot and the required offerings. Each day had specific Torah readings, etc. So they had these assigned readings. Now, on the eighth day, the day of Solomon's assembly, perhaps the day of the Simchat Torah, the readings from the best research that I could find would be on the day of the great assembly, they would read from Deuteronomy 14 through 16 and 1 Kings chapter 8 through chapter 9, certain portions of those scriptures. The day of the celebration of Torah was when they would read Joshua 1 and Genesis 1 as the Torah portions in essence. But these, this would be at the time that they're beginning their brand new year's reading plan cycle. So they would read beginning with Genesis 1 when they started the Torah portion reading. Now, according to the way John is writing and recounting this example here, it appears to be the first or the second day of the brand new reading cycle when Jesus goes back to the temple early in that morning and he sits down and begins to teach the people teaching the people perhaps from these Torah readings. It's very possible that that's what he taught them. The scriptures do not tell us that, so we cannot glean any more than what the scriptures say. But I do find it very interesting that the Haftarah portion in those days comes from Isaiah chapter 42, verse 5 through Isaiah 43, 11. And I want to look at that section because I think that has some pertinent verses to some of what we're going to discuss in this lesson. And in Isaiah chapter 42, verse 5 through 43, 11, I want to read a few select verses here. In Isaiah 42, this is prophetically speaking of Messiah. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. Portions of this are revealed to us and fulfilled in Jesus. We know that this is prophetically speaking about Jesus, the Messiah, the promised one of old. But portions of verse 1 here, we can see at Jesus' baptism occur because God the Father speaks from heaven and says, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Exactly what Isaiah 42 1 says here. We see the Holy Spirit descending upon him at his baptism, just like Isaiah chapter 41 verse 1 says as well. So we begin to understand that this is prophetically speaking of the Messiah. Now, in verse 6 and 7 of this chapter, it says this, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people 
as a light to the Gentiles, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the prison, those who sit in darkness from the prison house. I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved images. So we see here some prophetic words about the Messiah who is coming at that time. Isaiah is prophetically speaking about it. We come to the Gospels and we see these things being fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Then I want to read verse 21. Let's look at that one as well. The Lord is well pleased for his righteousness sake. He will exalt the law and make it honorable. But this is a people robbed and plundered. All of them are snared in holes and they are hidden in prison houses. They are for prey and no one delivers for plunder and no one says restore. Who among you will give ear to this? Who will listen and hear for the time to come? And then he goes on down. Let's see in verse 43, verse 1. But now, thus says the Lord, who created you, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine. Then go on down to verse 8. Bring out the blind people who have eyes and the deaf who have ears. Let all the nations be gathered together and let the people be assembled. Who among them can declare this and show us former things? Let them bring out their witnesses that they may be justified, or let them hear and say, it is truth. You are my witnesses, says the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, nor shall there be after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. All right, we know that within this time period, this is very likely the Torah portion. We do not know if that's what Jesus was teaching from or not. But we do know that this applies to Jesus, this is prophetically speaking of the Messiah. We know that it says that the Messiah, the Lord's servant, will exalt the law and make it honorable. We read in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 and 18, where Jesus speaks of this and, in a sense, and he says that I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, to bring it to its full meaning to exalt it and fill it full with its meaning, making it honorable. We know that this scripture speaks of people that would be robbed and hidden in prison houses. And we just saw in Isaiah 43, where it spoke about bringing out those and assembling together those that have been hidden and kept in these prison houses. And the Lord says, let them bring out their witnesses that they may be justified or let them hear and say it is true. So we're going to see how this plays out, how this comes to pass, at least in fulfillment in one episode of Jesus' life with this encounter with this woman. So in that last portion of that Parsha portion that we just read, 
which may or may not have been what Jesus was reading, but was certainly applicable to the timing of about when this event was occurring. It suggested that they bring forth witnesses and that through that encounter, they will learn that there is no other God and no other Savior. So we have Jesus teaching from the law, expounding the law, making it honorable, teaching God's word to the people, whatever passage he was using. And so all of a sudden, then we have a disruption. There's a noisy ruckus because we have entering on the scene these angry, self-righteous scribes and Pharisees, each one of them holding one of these huge stones ready to throw it at this guilty, sinful woman. The leader's intent, they bring this woman there. Their intent in doing this is to trick Jesus and cause him to be caught in a trap. They thought they had him. This was a gotcha moment, they thought. And they thought they had him with their own law, the Old Testament Torah. But we're going to see Jesus' wisdom and his brilliance. We are going to see in this passage how he shines as the counselor par excellence. He is the brilliant, wonderful counselor. So to see that, we need to understand this more fully. So you've got this pious religious crowd boasting of their own righteousness, and they come shoving this guilty, broken, sinful woman at Jesus' feet. Somewhere inside the temple courtyard, it says that Jesus had come into the temple where he was teaching, possibly in Solomon's porch, but somewhere in the temple courtyard. And so these people come in with this guilty and broken, probably shuddering, sinful woman. I would imagine she would be scared to death. And they come in with her feeling very justified and religious and very confident that they've got him in a gotcha moment and what's he going to do now? So we see this woman ashamed, caught in the act. The question, of course, many of us raise is, where is the man? Now, why is that important? Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10 says this, the man who commits adultery with another man's wife, he who commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. The Torah demanded that both individuals were to be killed. Both were to be stoned. So let's think about this woman. She's alone. We don't know where the man is. Maybe he's one of the scribes and Pharisees. Who knows? She's alone. She knows she's guilty. She knows that she is facing death by stoning. And she probably believes that she is caught red-handed and has no hope in the world of anything but sudden 
death. So Jesus now has been put into what they believe to be a gotcha situation. How in the world can he get out of this one? It appears the Pharisees have got him trapped, and there's no way out. Oh, but he is the wonder of a counselor, counselor par excellence, exactly like Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. But how is he going to get out of this one and still honor God and his word? How can he get out of this situation by still exalting the law and making it honorable, which is what he as the servant of the Lord was to do and would do? How can he do it without transgressing any of God's law? Remember, Jesus could not violate not even one of the Old Testament law scriptures. Not one. Why? Because if he would have violated even one, he would have been guilty of all. I want you to see that in James chapter 2, verses 10 through 13. For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point. He is guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So James makes very clear here, as does the Torah itself in another place, that anyone who breaks even one of these is cursed, is guilty of it all. So they think they've got him in this gotcha because of the Torah. Well, how are they so confident? What is it that they think they've got him on? We've already seen Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10. Now, let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 6. Whoever is deserving of death shall be put to death on the testimony of two or three witnesses. He shall not be put to death on the testimony of one witness. The hands of the witnesses shall be the first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hands of all the people. So you shall put away the evil from among you. So they bring this woman. She's surrounded by we don't know how many witnesses, but obviously there were more than two or three, which the law demanded. So there's this segment of Pharisees and scribes that are witnesses to this event. And they're already violating the law because they don't have both the man and the woman here. But they think they've got Jesus because they've got this woman that they know to be guilty and they bring her and they throw her down at his feet. Now, let's turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 19 and read another small passage. Deuteronomy chapter 19. I want to read verses 15 through 21. 
One witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or any sin that he commits, meaning he or she here, by the mouth of two or three witnesses the matter shall be established. If a false witness rises against any man to testify against him of wrongdoing, then both men in the controversy shall stand before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who serve in those days. And the judges shall make careful inquiry, and indeed, if the witness is a false witness who has testified falsely against his brother, then you shall do to him as he thought to have done to his brother. So you shall put away the evil from among you. All right, so this is what the Torah has demanded. I want to read one more passage in the Torah, and it is from Numbers chapter 35, verse 30. Whoever kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death on the testimony of witnesses. But one witness is not sufficient testimony against a person for the death penalty. So any crime that was capital punishment worthy under the Old Testament Torah demanded that there be two or three credible witnesses in order to support it. In regard to adultery, it required that both the man and the woman be brought and both were to be stoned to death. This is what the law demanded. So these Pharisees and scribes think that they are justified by the Torah and that they've got Jesus now because now they can accuse him of being against God. They can say he's not the Messiah. He's not merciful. He's not good. Jesus is caught in a conundrum here, or at least they think so. We know that the law demanded that as long as there were credibly two or three witnesses, the person was supposed to be stoned if it was a capital offense, according to the Old Testament law. They think they've got him caught. So Jesus' quandary, he's there. He's the promised Messiah, Savior, chosen of God, Son of God. He cannot violate God's word in any point, as we've already seen from James chapter 2, because he would have then been guilty of all of it or become a sinful person just like the rest of us. Therefore, he could no longer have been the sinless one, the perfect sacrifice for sin. But yet, he never came to condemn anybody, but rather to redeem and to save all who would call upon him. So remember, he wanted to be the one who would come and restore people and save them and redeem them. He wanted to show mercy. He wanted to cause them to have everlasting life so that they would not perish even in Isaiah 43 that we read, 42 and 43, he spoke about how no one would cry, restore to the people, meaning 
that God was desiring that people be restored, that people be saved and set free. So how is Jesus going to get out of this trap and maintain his sinlessness, meaning that he does not violate or dishonor God's word, but yet he shows mercy instead of judgment? Seemed like an impossible situation. But in Psalm chapter 89, verse 22, one of the prophetic words in the Psalms that speaks of the son of David, the son of God, it says in verse 20 through 22, I have found my servant David, which was another messianic prophetic name symbolized by David himself. I have found my servant David, another name for Messiah. With my holy oil, I have anointed him with whom my hand shall be established. Also, my arm shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not outwit him nor the son of wickedness afflict him. So we're told here that he will not be outwitted. So what is Jesus' response? This proves that he is the brilliant counselor. This shows us his counsel par excellence. So now let's read the account again. John chapter 8, beginning verse 1, But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, now early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery, and when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? This they said, testing him that they might have something of which to accuse him. See, we just read that from the Torah. They, they thought they had him dead to rights, and they thought that they could accuse him and that he had no way out, because if he let her go, then he had violated the Torah and dishonored God and his word. But if he stoned her, then they could accuse him because he wasn't this wonderful savior, this promised Messiah that would love and forgive. He wasn't who he claimed to be. So they thought they had him. Notice what Jesus does. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. So he stoops down and writes on the ground. Now, I think everybody and their brother that has looked at this scripture passage would love to know what Jesus wrote on the ground. And none of us know. It is not told to us. My guess would be that it is probably an Old Testament passage or scripture. In Numbers chapter 5, there's a scripture about the jealousy offering and some of those things it talks about in there. And it would say that the priest would write on the ground. It, they, would, they would write in the dirt the curses in the book over that sin. Possibly, more probably, I would think that it might be other scripture references or verses. Similarly, perhaps even the ones that would have been in that 
particular Parsha reading for that scripture passage, Isaiah 42 to 43, that we read earlier. Or perhaps one such as Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 13. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 13 says this, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be ashamed. Those who depart from me shall be written in the earth because they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living waters. Now to me, this may be a very real possibility. Remember, this happens right after the last great day of the Feast of Sukkot. During the Feast of Sukkot, they had the water drawing ceremony. It was at that time on this day that Jesus rises up and says to them, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And he talks about the rivers that the rivers of water that will flow from them and it will never run dry. And he was speaking about the Holy Spirit, which connects with this, that they've forsaken the law, the Lord, they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living waters. So it says right here that those who depart from him are written in the earth. Now, I don't know if that's what he wrote or not. We're not told. But what we do know is that whatever he did write convicted them. Now, he never raised up and said a word except the one thing that he said was, go ahead, you who are without sin. Let the first one that throws a stone at her be those who are without sin. Why did he say that? We read it earlier in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 7, where it says that the hands of the witnesses shall be the first against him to put him to death and afterward the hands of all the people. So Jesus was going back to the Torah and he was saying, okay, you think you are so holy and so righteous, you have no sin in yourself? Go ahead and throw the first stone at her. You'll remember also we read in Deuteronomy where if they were found to be false witnesses that brought something against a charge that was a capital offense against someone, they were supposed to be killed and receive the same punishment they were trying to bring to her. So this word was even a convicting word, I believe, to them. So that's the only thing he said to them. And then he stooped back down and writes again. And then notice what happens. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it being convicted by their conscience went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. Now, when Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? Why did he say that? Because the word of God, the Torah, demanded 
that for her to be stoned, there had to be two or three credible witnesses remaining. And there were none. There were zero. Even the law had stipulated that the two or three witnesses was a bare minimum. Even if one Pharisee had, had remained, they could not have put her to death according to the Old Testament law. So Jesus had gotten rid of the witnesses. This is how he shows that he is the brilliant counselor because all of the witnesses now are gone of their own doing, of their own choosing. The law had demanded the witnesses to be put to put her to death. There had to be at least two or three. And guess what? Now there were none. No longer did any witnesses stand in the way. No longer did the Old Testament demands by the law that were just for capital offenses stand in the way. They no longer applied. And that was true because all the witnesses had left. So now, even though he had not forced them to leave and could not force them to leave, now they had gone on their own. She no longer had any witnesses to testify against her. That's why Jesus asked her that question. And he says, has no one condemned you? In other words, nobody is left that's going to force us to stone you now. Jesus was free and justified by obeying and honoring the Old Testament law and making it honorable. He was now free to forgive her. He could now do what Isaiah said no one else would do and say to her, restore. He was now able to release her from her prison house that she had been bound in, as Isaiah had prophesied in that passage. He could now release mercy to her. So notice he tells her to go in peace, forgiven and no longer condemned, but also do not miss this. He told her, sin no more. In other words, change your behavior. Don't go back into that again. Don't let Satan lead you and put you back in that prison house again that I just released you from. Do not sin again. Mercy is not to be treated carelessly. It is not to be taken for granted or abused. God sets us free so that we can stay clean and free forever. That's his desire. And in order to stay clean before the Lord, in order to stay free, it requires that we sin no more. It requires a change of lifestyle. How was she to do that? John chapter 8 tells us, verse 12. Let me read 11 and 12. She said, no one, Lord. 
And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Then Jesus spoke to them again. And I believe she's in the midst, as well as the other disciples, etc. And it says, Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. There again, even his speaking of that takes us back to that Isaiah 42 and 43 passage. He is saying that the way you don't sin again is by following the light of the world. This is how you are not going to fall back and walk in darkness again. Have the light of life, eternal life, productive, fruitful life, joyous life, forgiven life, and a guilt-free life. It comes by following the light of the world, by continuing in Him, by listening to Him, by obeying Him, by following His example and learning from Him. And when we do that, we then have that blessed, productive, joyous, forgiven, and guilt-free life. Through this shining example, Jesus has just fulfilled, among other examples, Isaiah 9-6, which prophetically said he would be the wonder of a counselor, the counselor par excellence. Jesus is brilliant. He is able to apply all of God's word to its full, exalting it and making it honorable and not violate the letter of it while ensuring the spirit of it being fulfilled. If you remember in 2 Peter 3, 9, God makes it very clear. It is not his will that any should perish and that included this adulterous woman who needed to be set free from her prison of sin. We do not know what happened to her. The scriptures don't tell us after this point. She was never named because her name was not important, and perhaps even to protect her because she did be set free. She was set free. And she was given the opportunity and the instruction then in how to maintain that freedom and never have to go back to that old life again. Praise God. We can only hope that she stayed clean and continually walked in the light of Jesus from that point forward. Friend, Jesus is the wonder of a counselor. And if you have been involved in sin, if you've been trapped in a prison house, if you've had no one to say to you, restore, if you need to be saved and you need to be set free of anything, Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the wonder of a counselor. He is the Savior of the world. And there is none other. He and He alone saves and He is mighty to do it. And he can save you just like he saved that adulterous woman. And he can forgive you 
just like he forgave that adulterous woman. And he can set you free, just like he did that adulterous woman. And he can give you instruction and his word, which he has provided for us, so that you too can walk in the light of his word and not fall back into darkness again. I pray that if you need to call upon the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved, you will do that right now. He's right there. He will forgive you. He is not here to condemn you, but rather to save you so that you will have everlasting life. I pray if you don't know him as your own personal Savior, that you will come to do that even right now. Call upon his name. Believe in him. He died on the cross and his blood was enough to pay the penalty for your sin because you were just like that guilty, sinful woman who was standing there, guilty and deserving of death according to the law, according to the holy word of God. And yet, God sent his own son as a substitute, and his son died in your place so that you too would not be condemned, but rather would be able to be forgiven like she was and live a clean and blessed, victorious life, not being held in sin any longer. I pray that this has been a blessing to you. And Lord willing, you can join us again for more of our teachings and messages on our channels. God bless you today. In Jesus' name, amen.